You start a SaaS company from scratch, you have no brand, you have no user base, you're really starting it from nothing and you have to go after all these people. Whereas I think the best open source software companies, they're building on top of an already hopefully successful open source project and they're using that community to really grow their business as well. And the idea is that the best companies are actually only going to convert 1% to maybe 3% of their users to being paying customers. So this is not a 50% conversion game. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Douglas Hanna, Chief Operating Officer at Grafana Labs. Douglas is a seasoned revenue and operations leader. He was previously responsible for go-to-market strategy and business ops at Zendesk. At Grafana Labs, Douglas has been instrumental in scaling the business model at the open source company, building up both team headcount and its revenue. Building a business on top of open source technology poses an interesting challenge to revenue leaders. There are several nuances to consider in every step of the go-to-market process, from pricing and packaging to which roles a company should invest in and when. Yet, as Douglas reflects on what he's learned in the nearly four years spent at Grafana Labs, it's evident that it is an exciting time to be working in open source. In our conversation, Douglas jumps right into the nitty gritty of taking an open source product to market. He starts by offering his advice on when founders should consider commercializing a feature of a product versus when to launch a hosted version. He covers why pricing and packaging can be so difficult for any company and shares some of the trial and error experiments he ran at Grafana Labs to help fine tune their own pricing models, digging into what worked and what didn't. He also recounts how he helped scale the go-to-market team over time, starting at the beginning when the company relied mostly on founder-led sales and a handful of AEs, to the wider, more customer-specific model they operate today. We end with a conversation about the lessons learned from watching other open-source companies navigate revenue models, both their failures and successes. Douglas's advice will resonate with anyone curious about the world of open source. Whether you're considering building a business on top of an open source project, or maybe are looking into a new role at an open source company, this episode is a great jumping off point for peeling back the layers of how an open source business monetizes. And now my conversation with Douglas. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Brett. Happy to be on the podcast. So maybe an interesting place to start is maybe kind of your broad worldview on what makes a great open source business model when you've looked across the ecosystem or when you look at open source projects that haven't had commercial success, what do those pitfalls tend to be? Sure. So the first open source business model of Note was Red Hat, and they're basically fully open source and they've been able to 
really monetize on support and training and that side of the business. Your more recent, the last decade or so, commercial open source software companies have not really been able to do that. And most of them are, are going with some sort of open core to cloud services model. And companies in that cohort that I would think of and that we tend to look at and respect a lot include companies like MongoDB, Confluent, HashiCorp. And they started in general with a popular open source project, in some cases more than one. Initially, what they tend to do is they come up with a commercial version and that commercial version has some feature differentiation. And that the most obvious feature differentiation is things that big companies will pay for to solve compliance or security or, hey, we're using this software now with thousands of people. What are some of the things we need to do that? There's kind of this list of features that companies tend to pay for and you're able to monetize that. And then in the last probably four to five years in particular, a lot of these software companies are saying we also will run a managed version of it on their cloud platform or some sort of hybrid cloud platform and we'll just totally offload it all. And instead of buying software that you install yourself, you just sign up on our cloud and we'll deliver it as a managed service. That's kind of been the maybe step one, two, three evolution of commercial open source software in the last couple of years. And most of the best companies will start with a project that has really caught on or that they created or that one of the founders created in a lot of cases, which is the case at Grafana, or they might build on top of an open source project that's part of a foundation or a larger group like the Apache Foundation or CNCF or something like that. With that framing, if a founder who got an open source project off the ground that has interesting early traction wanted your advice on how to think about starting to commercialize it or build a commercial version, what's sort of the perspective or advice that you would give that person? First question I would ask is, can you think of some features that your biggest users of it have reached out to you about, or maybe they've even started to contribute back to that they would pay for. That's maybe one category, a pure like open core model. And then the other category would be, is it pretty difficult to run this? And if so, do you think your users would pay for you to manage it and run it for them? And they just put in a credit card or, or buy it from you. I think those, and, and ideally you have both and, and you have more ways to differentiate. Not that it's ideal to have it be difficult to run, but if you think about like MongoDB, databases are tough to run and that becomes a natural opportunity. So those would be the first questions I asked. And if your project is at some sort of scale, chances are that has come up. And what I think the best open source companies that start as projects will come is it's really a your customer, your users initially before they even become customers will start really just wanting to give you money to help them either feel more assurance of running your, your tooling in your project or to help you develop features or something like that. It's definitely an example where the best situation is one where they're asking for it, not that you're starting to email them all aggressively and say, hey, do you want to pay for this? How would you figure out in what order to do either of those things? Either try to build a feature set, as you were saying, maybe around security or other things versus a hosted version. So I think on a generic level, it's definitely a little tough to answer that. But if you look at the 10 or 15 organizations or, or people that are having the most success with your project, they're using it at the greatest scale, they're pushing the boundaries, et cetera. Where do their pain points seem to be? Are there pain points running and scaling it, which definitely happens depending on the project and what it is? Or are there pain points, hey, we have 
a thousand people at our bank that are using this. And it's really difficult for us to manage who has access to what feature in your tool. Like some tools are like going to be very backend focused. Others are going to be much more front end focused or administration focused. So it really depends on what the open source project is. And you're listening for the pain points across your community. And if you're looking at the GitHub issues that people are opening or what they're asking about in your community Slack with this lens in mind, you should be able to get a sense of, okay, when people use X project, these are some of the issues they're running into. And therefore, this can be an opportunity. Do you find that the same challenges when you think about, are you a mid-market solution or up-market solution in the world of closed source SaaS? those same ideas apply in this world of commercializing open source or they kind of express themselves differently? When you start getting to scale and you start actually thinking about building the business model on top of it, you do see a lot of that. At scale, you're definitely thinking about who is our ideal customer? What are the challenges they're trying to solve? What's their job title? That sort of stuff. When you're thinking about building a business on top of your project, definitely. I'm definitely less of an expert in starting an open source project. I've not done that before. I'm not qualified to do that. But my understanding and what I've seen and heard and talked to people I have started open source projects about is they're often starting it because they're trying to solve a problem that they've had and that they're technical enough and have inspiration enough to do that. That's the founding story of a lot of successful open source projects. Or in a lot of cases as well, It's spinning out of a company that did that on a company scale. And then often whoever is most involved in that in the company will leave and start an open source project around that or really develop on top of that. So in those two use cases, I tend to think that the project itself is more organic. But when you start asking people to pay for it, a lot of your traditional SaaS, who's my ideal customer? How do I get them? What do they care about? I think that becomes very applicable. In a number of cases in the world of more traditional SaaS, there's often this tremendous challenge if you are a mid-market solution going up market. So let's say you do a 50 or 100K ACV deal and you're trying to move up into to call it the Fortune 2000, Fortune 500, and you want to do 500K deals, million dollar deals. That transition tends to blow up lots of companies. Do you find that that's the same now that you're in the world of commercializing open source or are there parts that are easy or harder? I actually think it's pretty different. So one of the things that struck me about Grafana's early growth is that they had a lot of Fortune 500 logos. And in talking to other open source software companies, I realized this is not uncommon that the open source software gets a lot of traction at pick a big company. Then they reach out and they're like, hey, we have a lot of people using this. We want to pay for it or support it in some way. It's not your traditional, well, I'm going to start a company that does X, a SaaS company that does X, and we're going to start with small businesses because they're easier to sell to and they have less needs, and then we're going to move up. In open source, it's sometimes even the opposite, where you're starting with very large enterprises and you're thinking about, okay, how do we build like a scalable self-service business on top of that? For a while, I joked that MongoDB was the only really successful company where their average customer value was going down because they were really trying to build the self-service business, which has been super successful for them. And that's really helped them become the company they are today. But they started very high-end enterprise, and it was a very different motion than like I used to work at Zendesk. And we were trying to go up market from SMB for a number of years. And that was the biggest focus. It can be different in open source. And someone explained it to me once that part of why that's different is that it's so difficult to buy software at 
a Fortune 100 company, especially if it's a regulated one like a bank or something like that, that open source is like a way in the back door because there's a lot less scrutiny over it and they can just download it and start using it and it makes it really easy to get started. Whereas we have some banks and we spent two years in procurement trying to get in. How does that map to when you joined Grafana and started to think about how do we really accelerate go-to-market? How do we really commercialize this business? What you chose to do in what order? When I joined Grafana, we were called around 10 million of ARR. So not a small company by company standards, certainly startups, but not a huge company either. And the 10 million was from a mix of customers. It was from some very large companies, some smaller companies. Grafana is definitely a company where a small company can spend a lot of money with us and a big company doesn't have to spend a lot of money with us or vice versa. Some other companies, it's going to be more correlated to company size. But for us, there's not a huge correlation there. What we found and what we believed, and it's always harder to see this when you're in it, but we believed that we had some version of product market fit and that we were ready to step on the gas. So we were in the process of doing our first fundraise and thinking about that first meaningful fundraise and started building out the go-to-market team a little bit. And I think like a lot of companies, it was one or two reps at a time, pause, see what's going to go well, what's not going to go well, maybe one or two marketing people, see how that goes. It's very iterative for a while until we got increasing confidence that we were onto something and it was worth really scaling. Can you talk about that in a little bit more detail? Sure. I remember spending a lot of time talking with our founder about should we hire literally like one or two reps this quarter or should we hire maybe three reps and go crazy? And when I joined, I think we had six AEs. So there was a little bit of a sales team going and they were generally doing well. We were seeing a lot of inbound interest, but I think whenever you're growing quickly in your company, your aspiration is to grow quickly, you're always going to have to be a little bit ahead of what's comfortable. That's what we felt. It felt like a really big consequential decision at the time to hire two AEs and to put them in California or Texas or London at the time. And we were looking at productivity at pipeline and granted like our our data was crap at an early stage, like it is for a lot of early stage companies. So we were looking at those things and saying, okay, this is where taking another step into going from there. And I found like the data is always going to be a little fuzzy or incomplete. You're always going to be like, oh, am I going too far? Especially we were a company that I think did and still approach it pretty conservatively. And we took it like one step at a time. When you came in and they were already doing about 10 million in revenue, was that all generated by founder-led sales or what was going on to generate that early revenue? So definitely the earliest revenue was founder-led. I would say by the time I joined, we definitely had some salespeople that were successful on their own. The founder probably had met most of the customers and prospects at some point in the sales cycle, but they weren't doing every demo. They weren't talking to every lead, that sort of thing. We we're well beyond that and starting to see the repeatability of, okay, we can hire somebody off the street through a network, whatever, train them up to some degree and help them be successful. What was the early commercial version of the product? What were people buying in that first 10 million in recurring revenue? So V1 of the revenue started with donations and, hey, we like Grafana. We want to see you continue to be successful. Over time, we rolled out what we call Grafana Enterprise, which is still a product that we sell quite a bit of today, which is open source Grafana plus additional features. So similar in that open core model that I mentioned, those features include the standard security and compliance things, but also other 
data sources that you can bring in and show data from a bunch of other tools. And our larger customers and prospects were pretty interested in that. That was probably most of what we were selling. And we were in the very early innings of our cloud product at that time. So we had a number of customers on it, but we're mostly a Grafana enterprise business at that time. Continuing on this theme of when you joined the company, what was your first handful of months like? And how did you get your arms around the nuances of building an open source versus closed source go-to-market function, given you spent most of your previous five or 10 years in the world of more traditional SaaS? It was definitely a learning experience. And it was also a little bit of a culture shock going from a customer service software company. And I knew the customer service space really well. I had worked in the customer service space earlier in my career to an observability software company, a space that I knew very little about and had very little understanding of kind of the key customer problems. I had a good sense of this is what we need to do to build and scale the go-to-market motion and really help grow the company. But it took a while to get educated. And I literally had a folder on my desktop with, I think I called it things I don't know. And I would come across like a Google Doc that someone had written, maybe a product spec or something like that, or some notes from a customer conversation. And I would download a PDF of it and just put it in the folder. And about once a week for eight or nine weeks, I would have effectively a tutoring session with one of our technical leaders. And he was very patient with me and would spend time walking me through some really basic things around just what our product is and what it does. In open source, usually there's much more of an ecosystem component than in proprietary SaaS and explaining how all these different pieces fit together. So I, I definitely spent a lot of time on this, just getting to know the product and the ecosystem, what our customers are trying to solve. Obviously spend time with the team and with customers and just we're asking particularly the team, what's going well? What have you learned so far? Where do you think our opportunities are? And then with customers saying, where are you getting value? What else could we be helping you with? Are we falling short anywhere? Really similar questions ultimately and trying to get my hands around what's going on in the company and where are the opportunities? Where do we need to spend time and focus? So picking up the first handful of months, you mentioned that you joined and you thought about the different configurations of the next few hires on the go-to-market side. And I think you said you hired a few folks. Can you take us through what the next six to 12 months looked like and maybe the rationale behind what you chose to do? Sure. So I'd say we went from 70 to probably like 200 people in 12 months and are across the company and roughly probably a third of those are go-to-market. And if you join a company that's growing, and that is, is onto something, the most urgent hires will usually make themselves fairly clear, but not always. And we knew, for example, that we really needed to let our marketing team. We're doing really lightweight marketing. We had events and some content that we were doing, like very aligned with the community and open source, but we weren't doing a lot of like your traditional demand gen or we didn't have a product marketing person, for example, but we already had multiple products. So just thinking about, okay, here's an organizational gap that we need to go fill. There were some functions that we knew we needed to evolve. Like we had a nascent account management team, but our customer list was growing and we want to make sure these people stay with us and stay successful. So let's make sure we're building that out. There was no sales ops at all. And one of our sales leaders was our only Salesforce admin. Definitely was not qualified for that. No offense to him. So we hired someone to be our first sales ops person. So 
really trying to understand what those key gaps were. And then when we thought about the company, uh, say 30 or 40 million, what were some of the people we needed to hire to help us get there? And probably in a lot of these situations, we in hindsight wish we could have done it sooner. But it goes back to that fundamental thing I mentioned where you're always feeling like you're taking a leap forward and it's a little uncomfortable if you're balancing your risk and your opportunity appropriately. It takes a while to get over that mental hump and just be comfortable investing in that growth. When you think about those first two, five, seven sales folks on the team, how did you think about background and expertise and how important was it that they operated a similar ARR level before or they sold open source before or some of those variables? I think we went through probably every variation of what you just described with some of our different sales hires at some point in our company's trajectory. And it's still really difficult because you could say, okay, they need this experience and that experience. And it's really easy to point to a counterfactual on our team of someone who doesn't have that and has been super successful and has been a game changer at the company or vice versa. In the early days, we were definitely focused on open source experience. We can talk more about this, but I think the open source way of going to market is reasonably to significantly different than proprietary SaaS. So we wanted people that understood that. We actually tended to hire people from companies that were a decent amount larger than us, kind of training programs and good enablement programs and taught people how to sell and how to be great reps. So we hired a lot of people from companies like MongoDB, where some of our earlier sales leaders came from. They had great enablement. They understood open source, et cetera. But in interviewing those people, we had to make it really clear to them that we did not have anywhere close to the infrastructure or brand recognition or any of the other things that a much larger company has and make sure they're okay with that. Not all those people worked out from open source backgrounds. So that was a learning. Over time, we try to hire people with observability experience. There are plenty of examples of people who don't have observability experience on our team. And a lot of them have been actually quite successful and really if they don't have that industry experience, we focus on, to the extent you can scream for it, and it's hard, intellectual curiosity and drive in the sense of that they're really going to push to educate themselves and really push to understand what they don't know and do a version of what I did, but even more so where they hear something on a call or they're listening to a call that one of their teammates did and they're going out and investigating that so they can understand it next time they talk to that customer. So you mentioned something about open source selling is somewhat different or meaningfully different than maybe selling more traditional SaaS or closed source SaaS. Love you to talk about what are those differences that you've noticed? Yeah, it's uh, definitely dig into that. It's been a really interesting learning. It's still something I'm learning in that we're educating our team on a regular basis as well. So the biggest thing to know and how I usually start off explaining it to people is that Pretty much everyone they talk to uh, about Grafana or if you're at Mongo at our stage or at Confluent at our stage, pretty much everyone you talk to will already be in the open source ecosystem. And we're lucky that we have over probably about 10 million people that use Grafana and across a million active instances or so. So a lot of people use it. And as a result, most of our marketing and sales efforts are focused on users. We don't need to go explain to people hey, this is what Grafana is. Are you interested in it? Because we have a lot of existing users that we can talk to. Our marketing leader actually calls it 
demand curation because we're not generating the demand that already exists. It's more about finding the right people to target and to talk to about particularly commercial opportunities and then going after that. That motion is really different. Like you start a SaaS company from scratch, you have no brand, you have no user base, you're really starting it from nothing and you have to go after all these people. Whereas I think the best open source software companies, they're building on top of an already hopefully successful open source project. And they're using that community to really grow their business as well. The idea is that the best companies are actually only going to convert 1%, to maybe 3% of their users to being paying customers. So this is not a 50% conversion game. And we also have to educate people that are new to the business and the motion on that too. Like probably 90% and 80% of the people you talk to are going to be pretty happy with the open source software. And there's not going to be a commercial opportunity there, but you want to treat them well because they could be in the future. They might go somewhere else where they might want it and their users. And we really care about that constituency in our community. So that requires a lot of education across kind of all those different aspects of this is how it's different. And it's not just let me get a list, of, like a generic list of my biggest competitor and call those people or a generic list of people that went to this event. We really try to target it and make sure that we're providing a lot of value to those community members and being really sensitive about the brand. So to make it a little bit more real, when you look at the average seller at Grafana or you look at the average seller at Zendesk or another more traditional SaaS company, in what way do their conversations look different? In what way does their week or month or day look different? So I think if you're at Zendesk, obviously they have a big customer base and brand and all that. But I imagine that their sellers, especially on the high-end enterprise strategic side, are calling up customer service leaders at companies that say AT&T. They're like, let me tell you about Zendesk. It can help you replace your proprietary thing or it's cheaper or better, whatever the pitch is. Whereas at Grafana, if AT&T is a target of ours, we can do some research and see if anyone is using Grafana. Like maybe they talk about it in blog posts or they post it in our community or something like that. And then we can reach out to probably people at the practitioner level most often and have an open-minded conversation. It's not going to feel as much like a sales call. Because if someone reaches out to you from Grafana and they're like, hey, I saw you wrote this blog post about Grafana and you work at AT&T. Can we talk about how you use Grafana? Generally, people are really open to that conversation. They're excited to talk about it. So that difference in how you're generating pipeline ultimately, but more earlier stage conversations and just getting information and discovery is much different at an open source company than it is at a proprietary software company. And that's because ideally there's so much goodwill in the community and the excitement around it. And if you're matching that with well-handled kind of message sales conversations that are, are really focused on discovery, you're able to get a lot of information and then you can build your kind of sales campaign on top of that. And at that point, it doesn't look as different in the sense that you're doing demos or you're doing POVs or whatever. That's one difference. I think on a week to monthly basis, it probably doesn't look that different and beyond the transcript of the conversation or looking at the emails they send level. A lot of our kind of sellers activities will look very similar to that of other companies. And I think generally how they spend their time is going to look fairly similar, but the types of conversations they're having are pretty different. Something you mentioned a little while ago was this idea of interviewing for drive-in curiosity. And obviously, I assume that's something that throughout your career is something that you've thought about. 
I assume regardless of whether we're talking about an AE or some other role. I'd be curious, what have you figured out about figuring that out in the context of an interview? We do this like basically personality test called a Rembrandt on all applicants once they get past like the phone interview stage for us. We'll test on a bunch of things, including that. And there are a variety of pre-hire tests that people use. And we can talk more about that. But in an interview situation, particular to test drive, I'm really looking to see what sort of research someone has done and how much time and energy they've put into the hiring process. The ones that are, I think, quite motivated, ideally quite motivated to work at Grafana specifically, which this would also help assess, have done a lot. And we have a presentation step for all of our customer-facing roles. And you can easily see in the first five minutes who really invested time and energy into that, who potentially spoke to people they know in their network about Grafana, who even found customers I've seen and they talked to them talk to the relatives that were engineers, like great people go to great lengths there. And that's quite telling. And then on the curiosity part, I also find, and this is particularly relevant, I think, for when people chat with me as part of our interview process. So usually that's going to be later in the process is I'm very interested in what questions people ask. A lot of the questions are super generic, but every now and then someone will ask some really interesting questions about the company, the trajectory, the product, the customers, how they could be successful there. And I think given enough kind of data points, it's like, okay, that was like a, at least one, maybe two standard deviation, more interesting than normal question. And th those people, like, I think you're demonstrating that they're pretty curious and they're thinking about it in a much more advanced way than just, is this a good place to make a lot of money with reps? will get opportunities based on. Awesome. So let's switch gears a little bit. Something we haven't talked about is figuring out pricing in the early days. And I feel like this is an area that is tricky that often people don't have great answers or think it's more like throwing a dart than any sort of science. But I'd be curious, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you figured out in terms of pricing specifically as it relates to open source business models and how that translated to the evolution of pricing and maybe packaging over the last handful of years. Yeah, pricing and packaging is super hard. We joke that all of our leadership offsites are basically pricing and packaging offsites. We also joke that Pricing and packaging and naming are the two hardest parts of growing a company. So there's a little bit of internal trauma that you're poking at here, but I'm happy to talk about it at least somewhat and share our learnings for what they're worth. So early days, Grafana itself is pretty straightforward. It's a user seat-based model, but we've definitely have evolved it. And with open source, you have this interesting dynamic of there's potentially very large adoption of your tool already. And like, how do you capture some of that from a value perspective, but also not scare anybody away with super high prices or something like that. So we've evolved that a bunch of different ways. We're still evolving. And I was just talking with someone earlier today about pricing and packaging for Grafana Enterprise in particular. It has been an evolution. So the most consistent theme is we're trying to link it to be more usage-based, more consumption-based. Our customers really value that. We think it aligns incentives between what the customer wants and what we want, and it can be relatively straightforward as well. So that's been a, a theme there. And then we have a big part of our business that is more like kind of data volume-based. It's probably the best way to describe it from a pricing packaging perspective. And what we found is, while it goes in, in the face of Simplicity is that customers, particularly in this market, they want more levers to be able to tune and they, hey, just pay one price and get all these things, including some things you may not value and other things you may value a lot. 
what we've done over time is give customers more flexibility there and say, okay, you want this, call it like higher fidelity data here, maybe less frequency here. We'll let you tune those things from a pricing model perspective and have flexibility. And those have gone over really well with our customers, especially in the context of a shift to more usage-based, consumption-based billing. So those are two overall ones. I think in the early days for us, it was really, this is the model we have. We're going to try it out for a while. If we need to be flexible, we'll be flexible, particularly with some large customers, and we'll learn a lot. And we're now, several years later, we're still <laughs> largely doing that, but with a little bit more rigor. Are there pricing experiments or directions you've tried over the last few years that failed and there were specific learnings from? So every company I've been a part of, including Grafana, including Zendesk, we've always bundled and unbundled. I think this is the Shonical pricing packaging work in software. And we've had mixed results. I would say to my earlier comment, customers, more especially sophisticated customers, were saying, okay, I want more granular control over what I want to pay for. So that's been a learning. I'd say the more common outcome on most of the pricing and packaging changes we've made is no noticeable changes. And in an enterprise business, it, it can be quite lagging, obviously. Like we're not Facebook with a billion users and you make a change or a test and you can see it in 20 minutes. For us, uh, we make a change in pricing and packaging. It can be one or two or three quarters before we find out anything meaningful about it. So the result of some of that, I think, is that a lot of these changes were like, maybe it helped, maybe it didn't. And others we can definitely point to that have been quite successful. Any other thoughts on, let's say somebody is just getting going on either the directions that you talked about earlier, which is delivering a certain set of more commercialized feature security, et cetera, or a hosted version, how they might think about some of the early pricing decisions or exercises or rituals they should consider going through to get started. The first one I would start with for either of those is what is the right metric to kind of tie your pricing variable to? And does that scale up as usage gets more significant or ideally as value gets more significant? So users is a classic one for that. Data volume can be another one, though not all data volume is valuable. Obviously, sometimes it's not valuable at all. And when you're thinking about, okay, this is V1 of my pricing and packaging, that's where I always suggest that people start. If I'm using a thousand of this or a hundred of this or 10 of this, ideally I'm getting like orders of magnitude more value there. And what is the right pricing dimension to tie to that? People get confused with their customers when the price is going up, but the value is not going up necessarily, or the usage isn't going up in some way. That can get really messy really quickly. That's the first one for sure. Beyond that, something we've struggled with a little bit is this idea of like, how much do you want people in your tool versus monetizing all of them and, and their, their trade-offs. If it's completely free to add everybody and have them use it on a daily basis, but you're not making any money, that's bad. Or if it's so expensive, no one's using it, that's bad as well. So finding the right part of that spectrum is really important depending on what your open source project is and how you're monetizing it that may or may not be relevant. For something like Grafana, it was quite relevant. We've gone back and forth. We previously had a viewer and kind of editor license and they were separate and they had different pricing. And then over time, we've combined them because it was too complex for people to manage. That was a learning that we had based on feedback that we saw in our own business. And the other thing I think that's really important too is complexity 
And predictability is tough, especially when it comes for consumption-based things. No one wants a surprise bill. But honestly, I think people, when they have to make trade-offs, they would rather have the flexibility, even if that comes with less predictability, because no one is wanting to buy or pay for shelfware and tying the actual usage to what the vendor ultimately charges just aligns incentives so much more cleanly than buy a thousand seats. And if you never use it, we don't, at some level, obviously we care because you might not renew, but in the meantime, we don't really care. Whereas with our model, it's very aligned. Maybe continuing down this theme a little bit, what have you figured out that might be unique as it relates to selling into a technical developer-oriented audience relative to any of the other audiences you've sold into? Are there specific insights you've picked up as it relates to that? Maybe they're counterintuitive or that you found surprising, and it could relate to like how they think about value and thus willingness to pay the role of trialing. And that's obviously a big part of the value of open source. People can kind of start using it right away. But anything that's useful maybe for folks to think about that are figuring out that process of selling into developers? It definitely needs to be kind of less aggressive, a lot more value focused than I think selling into finance or HR or customer service or something like that. A lot of developers respond very negatively to any sort of higher pressure sales tactics or obnoxious marketing or things like that. I think intuitively people understand that, but then you see marketing campaigns that some companies are doing or people will try to reach out with a lot of messaging or something like that. And it can really turn people off. So thinking about what is the value you're providing in that messaging to a developer? Is it making them aware of an event or a webinar or something like that that they're going to find useful or providing them with some resource? That's true for most buyers, but I think it becomes extra true and extra relevant for developers. I think the sophistication and willingness to handle complexity is higher than with some other buyers. Like I mentioned, we're providing more knobs, basically, and levers that people can pull in our pricing model over time. And in general, I think our buyers like that and prefer that because they'd rather customize it and make sure that it's a fit for their needs. Whereas in other models and other buying profiles, that could be really complex. That complexity could be really negative for them and really go against what they're trying to do. That's probably a second one that I would call out. And then I think the third one is like lots of companies talk about developers selling to them and marketing to them, et cetera. And maybe not particularly in open source, but if you have a model that starts with developer adoption, which is definitely true for open source, but eventually you want to get meaningful money out of the company that person works for, whether that's a start a larger startup or a Fortune 500 company, you need to go well above the developer in the org chart. One of our investors calls our go-to-market model the love sandwich and that you have the bottom-up adoption of the tool and you have the kind of top-down selling that we also have to do because developers, as important as they are, cannot write seven-figure checks or sign six-figure contracts. And they might be great advocates and champions, but ultimately you're going to have to go to someone who's a director or a VP or whatever the appropriate level is. So your model is going to have to converge and eventually work with both of those personas or you're not going to be successful unless you're planning to do a pure self-service, everybody pay $20 sort of thing, which is not how most large software companies get built. Something you started to briefly talk about earlier was the actual go-to-market team and how that configuration changed over time. 
maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe in three snapshots, maybe at 10 and 30 and 50 or pick whatever arbitrary sort of ARR number, how you thought about holistically what the team structure on the go-to-market side should look like. And maybe when you look back, some of the things you think you got wrong or some of the things you changed your thinking about over time. So V1 at 10 million in, in ARR was six reps, one sales manager, two, I think, account managers, a couple support people, and like two marketing people. That was basically the org to get us to that initial set of milestones. So what we started really building out over time were some of these supporting functions. We talked about really building out marketing and having a real marketing function with demand gen and eventually product marketing and more content and events and all that stuff. So all those things have obviously evolved over time. The sales structure, we've consistently had what I would call like a combined hunter-farmer role. Some companies change that over time and maybe they'll have someone who focuses purely on new business or new logos or things like that. But we've had a combined responsibility there. And I can talk about why. Something in our mid-level that we started doing a little bit more and, and now particularly at a much larger scale we do is we have much more rigorous segmentation. And I think that it would probably be as a company goes from 10 to 50 to 100 or 200, I think that's one of the kind of biggest changes that will occur is that you'll go from what I jokingly call a big bucket of reps or a big bucket of CSMs or whatever that kind of accounts are assigned roughly at random to, okay, we're going to have a team that's going to focus on larger companies. We're going to have a team that will focus on smaller companies. And those two teams will have different talent profiles and experience expectations and things like that. So that's been like, when we think about our sales organization, a consistent evolution. Another, I think, interesting kind of growth area within sales is usually around geography as well. So we're mostly Americas, certainly in the earliest days when I joined we had one person who's still on our team today. His territory at the time was literally rest of world. Needless to say, a, a pretty lucrative territory. But over time, we really built out initially our EMEA team. And now at our current scale, we have people in APAC and LATAM as well. And we're building out in smaller European markets outside of UK, Germany, about to hire people in Israel, smaller European markets like that. So geography, segmentation are two of the big changes that We've again stepped into over time based on signals we were seeing in, in some VCs around investment and where some growth would come from. On the post-sale side, we definitely have gone from, okay, we have support people, basically, was V1, to we have some support people plus account management. Professional services was one that we started building out relatively early in the sense that we needed people to help with implementations. We needed people to help get more hands-on with customers for paid services. So that was something we built out and had some success with, or has been quite successful actually. And now we're really thinking about how do we scale some of these? How do we leverage partners as well across professional services, marketing? We talked a little bit about marketing on the ops side. We've gone from basically Salesforce admin to like real, we call it revenue operations team. And I think what you typically see in the growth of a sales ops or rev ops team is you're probably going to start with kind of tools and basic analytics. This is going to be your kind of V1. And then you're going to probably step up to, okay, we're going to have, obviously you're still going to need tools experts. You're going to need some people that will help understand at least what's happening, maybe high level. And then when you're getting to, to greater scale, 
you're going to want people that can do a little bit more around predicting, hopefully what can happen and really understanding the double and triple click into the high level metrics. That's been a slow evolution for us. I don't think I've ever met a company where they're like, we hire the appropriate number of sales ops people at the right time. It doesn't happen. It's an easy function not to fund relative to other ones. So that's been one that's had a couple layers of evolution. Going back a little bit, would be great to maybe talk a little bit more detail how you thought about the first five or 10 hires. And you talked a little bit about the marketing function, some of those other things, but call it it's a company that's doing their first few million in revenue in an open source context. And they're trying to figure out the different parts of that very early go-to-market team. You talked about sort of starting with a few sellers and building from there. But maybe you could go in a little bit more detail around those decisions or how you think about what that very early, more broad go-to-market function should look like and maybe why you think that. So probably in the earliest days, you're looking for people that can offload some of the work from the founder. And that could be an AE, maybe two that are riding shotgun in a deal cycle and they're helping with the paperwork, maybe some of the negotiation, but they're not necessarily leading the full deal cycle. And as you start getting customers, it's natural too that you're gonna want some people to help work with the existing customers. So whether that's support or some sort of customer success function, or more likely it's a hybrid of that in the earliest days, hiring those people I think are helpful and will get the founder, whoever's doing the earliest selling some more leverage for sure. That first marketing hire is a really tricky one across companies, and they're probably going to want someone that can do content, brand, product marketing, demand gen, everything. It's really hard to focus on or to pick the right profile there. Open source, you tend to have that kind of demand built in, which is nice. So then I, I think about who is the right marketing hire that they can bring on to help with that demand curation. And that's probably going to be some combination of content and events because those are the things that are going to really appeal to your open source community. Because if you think about it, we haven't talked about this as much, but if you continue growing, your very top of the funnel for your commercial business is your open source adoption. And you need to grow that first and foremost. And if you're growing that effectively, that will help grow your revenue in turn. So your content and events people are probably your V1 marketing team. And then the thing that you're, you probably want to scale next would be more salespeople they can ideally run at least some smaller cycles on their own. And in open source, you're almost certainly going to need technical help for those salespeople. So we call them solutions engineers or called other things in different companies. That's some of our earliest go-to-market hires for also we're technical solutions engineers that can work really closely with the sellers in an ideal cycle. Usually there's going to be two or three AEs for every one SE, and they partner with them to help them on the technical side of the sale. That Probably I wasn't adding up all the math, but that probably gets you to your first 10 or so people as your revenue keeps growing. And I would go roughly in that order. And then how do you think about the next sort of step up from there? Let's say you go from 10 to 20. You talked about it at a high level as you talked about the arc. Any other nuance to keep in mind? With sales, I think it's the easiest thing to get ahead of yourself in hiring. And that's why we probably spent the most time talking about, okay, do we want to hire two more reps or three more reps? And you can look at productivity, which is, is super helpful. You can look at pipeline, which is going to be a leading indicator more so than productivity. You can look at your kind of inbound funnel. Are you getting a lot of inbound conversations? And is that enough to keep reps busy? That sort of thing. You're going to want to spend some time with that data. But the biggest thing that I would look for in this kind of 
even up to 20 million or 10 to 20. Is there some repeatability that you're seeing here? And I think your first question for me was all, is that basically just founder-led sales at the time? And if you're seeing that repeatability in the sense that a rep can, for the most part, run a full cycle on their own. And clearly there's resources across the company. And we, even our current scale, our founder talks to prospects all the time and we encourage that significantly, but he doesn't have to run every cycle. And if you're seeing that repeatability, you're probably really onto something and you're able to hire some more reps. And you want to be strategic about what accounts, existing accounts or prospects you give them or what territory you have and make sure that you have a path to success. Something I didn't appreciate as much in my earlier days of sales leadership is that too many accounts can be just as bad as too few accounts when it comes to rep productivity and keeping your team focused is really important because if you're not keeping them focused, they're not really investing anywhere and they're just playing whack-a-mole and probably doing a bunch of transactional stuff. Building on this topic of running and instrumenting a team on the go-to-market side, are there specific metrics that you're quite obsessed with that you think other folks that run or think about go-to-market teams might overlook or care less about? And what's the story behind them if there are any? So I think what's different and kind of the broader theme of open source and how it's different as well is we look a lot, we call it heat. You can call it whatever you want, but it's basically what sort of open source traction are we seeing in a given territory? We spend a lot of time looking at that, particularly when we're deciding how many reps and where to hire them and at what level. And I think a lot of companies don't spend a lot of time there. They're like, obviously, we need someone in Atlanta. And then they hire somebody in Atlanta to focus on Atlanta accounts. Whereas we try to make that a very database process or fact-based process for us, where we're really hiring based on where we're seeing demand. And for, again, like Copa Funnel for us, it's open source adoption. We're trying to look for that. So I think that's one. We're starting to get much better at looking at pipeline. This is not a unique thing to look at and thinking about pipeline creation and pipeline coverage. There's a distinction there. A lot of people miss in really improving our forecasting cadence as well for in-quarter deals and in driving accountability at the rep manager executive level for that. So those are things that we also look at and we spend a lot of time on when it comes to growing our go-to-market team. But I think probably the more unique one would be this concept of heat, really using that to inform a lot of our resourcing decisions. So there were two things that I wanted to ask a follow-up on. One is the idea of heat. What does it actually look like from a metrics basis? Like, what does that more tangibly look like? We'll think about web traffic. We'll think about contact requests or other kind of inbound, like webinar signups, et cetera, from that territory. We'll think about previous opportunities we've had from companies in that area. Think about assigned and unassigned accounts, potential accounts that we have in that area. It's really like, this kind of kitchen sink of metrics that we have. We tried to do some scoring on it. We definitely have ups and downs with the scoring, but it's really looking at, let's try to put together a bunch of different data points that we have that indicate, is there something here? And if you looked at it in isolation, if you just looked at Atlanta by itself, it would probably just be an overwhelming amount of data. But if you looked at it compared to six other metros in the US or in the world, it actually becomes pretty clear of, okay, this is somewhere we should invest. And you could easily argue, Maybe Atlanta's numbers look bad and that should be a good market for us. Great. But in our world, in our model, we're really focused on going after where the demand is already and then capitalizing on that versus trying to create a bunch of demand that maybe doesn't exist today. 
So the other thing you mentioned was this idea of pipeline creation versus coverage. And some people forget those are two separate things or something like that. I was curious to hear more about your thinking there. Your traditional metric that you hear around pipeline is, oh, I have 3x coverage, which is is good. That means you have 3x the amount of pipeline that you need to convert for presumably that quarter or whatever time period you're looking at. That's helpful. But what you also have to look at is pipeline creation. If I have a call today and it turns out it's a really good call, maybe there's an opportunity there. It's probably not an opportunity for this quarter. It maybe is not an opportunity for next quarter, but that's a real activity that matters. So if that's a Q3 opportunity and I create it, we're in our Q1 now, like that's pipeline creation. But if I'm looking at next quarter, that won't show up in pipeline coverage. So what you could have is imagine a scenario where your team is super focused on creating opportunities, but somehow they're all for next quarter but you haven't built any pipeline for kind of N plus one quarters or N plus two quarters, that will uh, lead to like a pipeline clip and be a big problem for you down the road. So when we look at pipeline, we're looking at coverage as we go out different quarters and coverage will climb over time as we get closer to it. But we're really focused on pipeline creation and it will will spread out over time just naturally because different people are different timelines, all that. But if you're not looking at them combined, you'll not have the right amount pipeline that you need for when you need it. One of the last things I wanted to get your thoughts on, we talked a lot about how you think about getting good at marketing commercialization right in open source. I'm curious if you've learned things from studying open source businesses that failed to commercialize or failed to capture value, or maybe I assume as an open source go-to-market leader, you spend a lot of time with other people in similar functions at other companies. And so you probably hear patterns and pain points and things that are really hard to get right specifically in the world of commercializing open source. And I'm curious if anything comes to mind for you across those set of topics. Definitely. So I think this interesting concept in open source, and I didn't come up with this, but is this balance between value creation and value capture. So value creation in most cases in open source is going to be providing really high quality projects or for free. And that's creating a lot of value for your users. And then value capture is putting more stuff behind the paywall, basically. And all open source companies, I think, wrestle with this. And what is their balance between value creation and capture? And I think generally, and this is a very generalized statement, as your company gets bigger, you're probably going to ship more towards value capture. And that's okay. But a quote that I, I have, to my knowledge, came up with is that winning in open source is not a given either. In the same way that we have commercial competitors, there are new open source projects all the time. And it's important. And you can fork an open source project way easier than you can fork a commercial company. And it's really important to us that we stay competitive and differentiated and open source in the same spirit language concepts that you would talk about with any paid software as well. So balancing all these different things is something that, that companies definitely get wrong. I don't think we've been perfect at it by any means. And that if you do it poorly, it could be a company ending event effectively because you're, you'll lose your community and you're not going to be able to continue growing. Done well, that can be a huge accelerator of growth and done poorly, that can be really fatal for an open source company. Another one that I really call out that I think is relevant. I haven't seen what will predict this in advance, but definitely happens for open source companies is they hit some sort of ceiling. And usually what I think happens is that 
their community is not growing enough or they don't figure out what their next act is from a product perspective or a monetization perspective and they hit 10, 20, 30 million dollars of ARR and then they kind of just stall out. That happens and is frightening. So if you're thinking about your open source company or joining one, definitely be mindful of that and get a sense of is that happening or not. And then the third one too is this was a concern of mine joining Grafana. Tech is like fashion and there are trends. And if you don't ride the right wave in tech, and I can point to one or two of these that Grafana has done quite well, and it's been really, really good for us. But if you're not really thoughtful about what the next wave is, again, not just with only your product, but your broader ecosystem, that can be really difficult to overcome because if, again, all your users might leave and as a result, all your pipeline subsequently, both pipeline coverage and creation will leave as well. And it gets super difficult to recover from that if you get too far behind. Is there a good example in the past few years, something that maybe other companies would have considered charging for that you made the decision not to or put behind the paid plan or the opposite? where maybe there was something that you chose to charge for that maybe other people would think that's not a great idea that's actually made a lot of sense and philosophically aligned well with you all. I can give an example maybe of each of those. And on the, we chose not to pay for it, we chose not to charge for it. I think other companies could have charged for it. We released a product and it had this really important scalability feature in it that paying customers were telling us they, they were going to value and were interested in. And we actually decided to release it into the relevant open source project, which we were trying to get off the ground. And the rationale behind that was, we want this open source project to be where anyone in the community starts, particularly if they think they are gonna have a high scale use case. The ultimate goal of that is, okay, if they start there, we're gonna be their first call when they want some commercial help for it. And we used to buy that and that's gone pretty well. That was probably about a year ago now. and. It's probably even a little early to tell the full impact of that. So that's one example of most companies, most teams would have charged for that. And we were able to release it for free as part of our open source. The other one, maybe a counter example is in general. So Grafana has data sources. Generally, the free ones are other open source projects, things like that. And the paid ones are ones that are associated with other tools that you pay for. So think like, Oracle or Splunk or things like that. If you're paying for those tools, the thinking is you have budget to pay for Grafana as well. And we have occasionally made exceptions to that where we've put certain like either low dollar or even in some cases free, like MongoDB is a paid plugin for us, but there's free and low cost usage of it. And we've put that as one of our paid plugins and it's gone. It's gone well. People like it. They don't complain too much about it. But that was just a decision where we are like, okay, we think this is the right thing to do at the time we made the decision. And some of these are one-way doors and some of them are two-way doors. Generally, if you keep something proprietary, you can always decide to release it for free later. It's super difficult to take something free and make it paid in open source because literally the code is out there. But we try to be mindful of that too. And as we go to more, and this is probably part of the reason that cloud kind of services models have become more popular for open source companies, you're generally not running into that as much. And it's more of a, they're paying you to manage and run it versus maybe the specific features. And some companies have gone as far as saying, we've open sourced all the features, but our business model is running it for you. And then you don't have the same debate. 
So I thought we could end with sort of a question that I'm always curious about, which maybe in the context of what we've been talking about, who is the person or persons that have helped you learn the most in this world of commercializing open source? And is there anything they taught you that we haven't talked about yet? And maybe to make it slightly more interesting, focus on maybe people outside of your company that have been particularly illuminating. I had two good people in the company that have definitely taught me a lot about it. But with that qualifier, I'll have to think about it a little bit more. Probably less specific conversations I've had with specific people and more about watching the industry grow and talking to and thinking about how other companies have grown. Like we probably, at least I've probably learned the most from chatting with people current or former at MongoDB. There are a lot of similarities in our models and approaches and cultures to some extent there. And that's been super helpful for me. We've hired a number of people from there. But we've also been really inspired by how Snowflake has grown, particularly with how they think about consumption as part of a key part of their business model. The cloud providers have been huge for us. And we've done partnerships with a lot of those. Looking beyond just our direct space for inspiration and cues to what customers are valuing and how we can leverage that. And thinking a lot about we're a quickly growing company too. What are some of our pain points and challenges as we think about this? A lot of our products start that way too. That's the where in terms of what the biggest single one that I got from outside of our company that's had the biggest impact is our shift towards much more of a consumption-based model. That's had a huge impact on our growth and our go-to-market and seeing and hearing how Snowflake and other cloud providers do that was super educational for us. And it took a little bit of a leap to go for it, but uh, it made a, made a big impact. Any other nuance about that, just maybe to close things out? I think obviously there seems to be a lot of tailwind to this move towards across the ecosystem, both closed and open source towards usage base. But for somebody who hasn't thought that much about it or is a bit skeptical, any quick thoughts that might be useful for them? There's several. It's definitely, obviously it's really nicely aligned with customer value, but it creates a lot of complexity. One is like, you're seeing this in the market, in the down market, it's very easy to stop consuming as well, relatively, and you don't have the same revenue protection of you have a bunch of customers that have just contracted X number of seats, and you really have to be on your A game because if your customer is not consuming, you're not making money. So that's a big one. I think it's harder than just selling it in advance. Another big one that is a little more technical, but I think matters is you potentially will have a decent divergence between your bookings and your revenue. And depending on your accounting treatment, talk talk to your accountants about this. That could be a, a meaningful problem for your company where some companies you don't recognize the revenue until they actually consume. Others, you can recognize it when they buy. But that informs a lot around how you want to measure and compensate and reward your sales team. Are you going to be very consumption focused or more bookings focused? That's a big decision and can be tricky for companies that are used to just the revenue and the bookings are basically correlated one-to-one. So that's been a meaningful one for a lot of companies. And then I think going to a consumption mindset across the whole business, so like customer success team for us is very focused on how are people consuming? Are they above or below the line? Is it taking longer than we thought it should? That sort of stuff. That's a, a really meaningful one as well. And then maybe the final one that's tactical, but relevant when you're designing this for your customers, understanding how you want to approach the concept of overages. And the overages would be, I am like spending 
and let's say I sign a hundred thousand dollar contract and I'm spending $20,000 a month over that kind of what you would imagine the equal run rate would be. And eventually you'll run out of your contract. And what do you do? Some companies will say, cool, we'll just bill you in arrears, no problem. Other companies will say, well, that's not good. You go back to list price. We need to negotiate a new contract. There are a bunch of different ways to do that. And so it's going to depend on the customer behavior you want and maybe how mature your business is. But it's an important implication that I think a lot of companies don't think about at the beginning. Awesome. Thank you so much for such a wide ranging, interesting conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking some really good questions and making me think about some of these things. 